Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to the new season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, the McIver murder case. For additional information, photos, videos, and previous seasons of Breakdown, Go to AJCBreakdown.com and follow our Twitter feeds at AJC Breakdown and at AJC Courts. Previously on Breakdown. He said, darling, he said, why don't you just hand me my gun? Suddenly awakened, I lurched, and the gun fired. And I was just, just absolutely shocked. He kissed her. She smoothed her hair back and caressed her face. So I love you, I love you. And he was crying. I want you to let the defendant know that the rules, they apply to everybody. Everybody. And that he is not above the law. The chief assistant district attorney hit the courtroom at a run. Clint Rucker was late. He was sweating. He was out of breath. Judge Robert McBurney was asking Rucker to present his closing argument. At issue, whether Tex MacGyver should return to jail for violating the terms of his bond. Okay. Just give me about 30 seconds to catch my breath, and then I'm ready to go. Okay. What the courtroom didn't know was the surprise Clint Rucker had in his back pocket. Rucker hadn't been running back late from a long lunch. He had been in front of a Fulton County grand jury, seeking a new indictment against Tex. And he got it. For now, the court was concerned with whether Tex MacGyver should go back to jail because investigators had found a gun in Tex's sock drawer. For the previous four months, MacGyver had been mostly confined to his luxury condo in Buckhead. It wasn't a bad place to do time. 3,400 square feet with closets bigger than jail cells. But Judge McBurney found the gun in the sock drawer was a clear violation of MacGyver's bond. I am going to revoke Mr. MacGyver's bond, but I am amenable to reinstating it. And so what that means is that Mr. MacGyver is going to go into custody today. My concern is for everyone's well-being. Mr. MacGyver and firearms don't mix well anymore. I I trust that for dozens and dozens of years, Mr. MacGyver derived great pleasure from being around guns and and firing them and hunting and collecting them. Um, But uh, as of uh, about seven months ago, that equation reversed itself entirely. Um, And it just can't happen again. Remarkable and alarming that there was still a gun um, that accessible to Mr. MacGyver. It wasn't found in an attic inside a dusty box that hadn't been touched in months and months, but it was in a spot that was accessible and had been accessed 
and that was plainly prohibited for good reason. Hello, I'm Bill Rankin of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm here again with my AJC colleague, Craig Schneider, who's covered this from the beginning. Hey, Bill. You know, as we started recording this episode, we received some big news. The judge just postponed the trial, which was set for October 30th to March 5th. Moreover, he's about to set the terms that would allow Tex to get out of jail on bond until then. All right, let's get back to that day when Rucker rushed into the courtroom. Rucker had obtained a malice murder indictment against McIver. He didn't come right out and tell the court about the indictment. That would become public the next day. But he strongly hinted that the stakes had changed, from a charge of involuntary manslaughter to something far, far more serious. Everybody in this room knows that pretty much taking pleas on murder cases, that's kind of not, that's not what I do. I, I go to trial on cases. And I fully expect to go to trial on this one. This was a year full of bad news for Tex MacGyver. But it didn't get much worse than it did on this day. First, the judge revoked MacGyver's bond and sent him back to the Fulton County Jail. But the worst of it was about to come crashing down. The involuntary manslaughter charge would have yielded a maximum of 10 years in prison. Not good for a 74-year-old man. But now MacGyver was facing malice murder and six more felonies. If found guilty... It might as well be a death sentence. We need to pause a moment and tell you something really important and really odd about this indictment. The Atlanta Police Department, after investigating the shooting, chose to charge MacGyver with involuntary manslaughter. In other words, they thought the shooting was accidental. But the DA took a different view, and he didn't mind throwing the APD under the paddy wagon. Here's lead prosecutor Clint Rucker at the bond hearing in April. Now, um, I want to tell the court that, uh, and I know you know this, uh, he is charged by the Atlanta Police Department with involuntary manslaughter that has absolutely nothing to do with the Fulton County DA's office is going to do. Nothing whatsoever. It's not unusual for a district attorney to tack on more charges after police turn over a case. That's especially true with smaller police departments. But it's unusual for that to happen in a high-profile case, like this one, which had been thoroughly investigated by Atlanta police and its seasoned homicide detectives. Here's Marietta defense lawyer Ashley Merchant, once a public defender in Fulton County. You see the DA adding charges regularly, charges like... um gang charges or racketeering charges or what we would call add-on enhancement type charges. You see that, but it's very uncommon for them to charge something as a manslaughter and then it be raised to a malice type crime. That is not something that you see often. But I think it's very telling that you've already got some dissension between the police and the DA's office and whether or not it was reckless conduct or whether or not it was malice, what the actual motivation was. What makes it even more extraordinary was that the victim, Diane MacGyver, in her dying declaration, said it was an accident. And the only witness, driver Danny Joe Carter, also said it was an accident. That's obviously compelling stuff for the defense. But don't underestimate Tex's ability to sabotage himself. Let's go back to that moment when they arrived at Emory Hospital. Emory police officer Frank Stroop told the DA that he saw MacGyver talking to his lawyer, Steve Maples, who was summoned to Emory Hospital that night. Quote, what do I say? What do I do? Unquote, MacGyver asked Maples, according to Stroop. And this is what the DA's report says. 
Stroop advised that it sounded like Maples and MacGyver were devising a quote-unquote game plan. That looks bad. That looks really bad, no matter what happened. It looks bad. Atlanta police didn't charge Tex with influencing witnesses, but homicide investigator Darren Smith was definitely fishing in that pond when he interviewed Danny Joe a few hours after the shooting. That's why I was asking now if, you know, if there was ever any conversation between you and Tex and Steve about what to say or what not to say, because... No, I never talked to Steve. Hmm. Never talked to Steve, the lawyer. But she didn't say she never talked to Tex. Smith pressed Danny Joe on whether she and Tex had gotten together on the story they would tell the authorities. So I just want to know, I mean, if, if there was any conversation now would be... Because it, it, if... If I discover there was some type of conversation, it's, it looks bad, like it's not accidental and it's more intentional at that point. Because when people try to cover stuff up, if they do, I'm not saying that's what's happening, but mm-hmm. the guys I came in here, some of the guys in my unit told me that there's chatter that from the other detectives that they got that somebody might have been trying to get their story straight before they talked to the police. And I don't, like I said, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I was in bed when I got called. I actually yeah. got woke up, so. I know that I was surprised when that policeman said that. Okay. And, um, because most of the time I wasn't even in there. I guess this won't be much of a surprise, but the new indictment formally charges Tex with trying to influence witnesses. The first of these was Danny Joe on the night of the shooting, according to the indictment. It says that Tex told Danny Joe to tell the police that she wasn't in the car when Diane was shot. This was obviously preposterous. Diane was in the passenger seat. Tex was in the back seat. And as we know, cars don't drive themselves yet. Tex's lead attorney, William Hill, said that conversation never happened. It now appears that Danny Joe could be an extremely important witness. Remember, she initially said she thought Diane's death was an accident and had only nice things to say about Tex. Since then, she's changed her tune. She's given interviews to prosecutors and, Hill says, won't even talk to Tex's defense team. In a recent interview, Hill said there could be a reason for this. According to Hill, Diane had loaned Danny Joe money, but after Diane's death, Tex asked Danny Joe to pay off those loans. And once she found out that, that Mr. MacGyver expected her to make payment on those loans, then suddenly her, her tone, her tenor about Mr. MacGyver changed. That's when uh, we started getting these stories about uh, Mr. MacGyver wanting me to tell uh, uh, people that I was not in the car. <laughs> well, if he's in the back passenger seat, and Diane's in the front uh, passenger seat. Somebody's driving. That was just the first charge of influencing a witness. Ten days after Diane died, Tex called Danny Joe's home, leaving a voicemail message for her husband. According to the indictment, Tex intimated that Danny Joe should stop talking to the police. Then he asked on the same voicemail that Danny Joe's husband delete the voicemail. It's stupid. I mean, why would he do that? It's so dumb. That's trial lawyer Ashley Merchant again. She can't believe MacIver would have done such a thing. Immediately, you think that there's a sinister motive. You think that he did it because he's guilty. But 
he is a lawyer. He does know how things work. It definitely sounds bad. It sounds like he's trying to cover it up. But the question is, what is he trying to cover up? Is he trying to cover up that he actually did something on purpose? Or is he trying to cover up that it's going to look like he did something on purpose? Because if he's trying to cover up that it's going to look like he did something on purpose, that doesn't mean he did something on purpose. And finally, MacGyver is accused of trying to influence witness Bill Crane, who was Texas' spokesman. Five days after the shooting, Tex called Crane with instructions to retract a statement Crane had made to the media. The indictment doesn't specify which statement. And that seems to be a problem with the indictment, by the way. Seems like it should have more specificity. Tex's lawyer, William Hill, said it speaks directly to that outrageous claim that Tex wanted his gun because he was feeling threatened by the prospect of a Black Lives Matter protesters. Here's what Crane said about the new charge. I was never asked to falsify or shade statements to any law enforcement authority if asked. At that stage, no one had interviewed me. I was only asked to retract and correct statements given to news media. If you want to discredit me, discredit me. But when you start trying to disavow pieces of your own statement and substituting new versions of the statement, it becomes a downhill slippery slope in terms of your credibility to the prosecution. It should be noted that Crane is among those who believe this was an accident. But he's still saying the damage was done. You can't unring it. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. So you, and you can't scrub the hundreds of other news outlets that picked up the story. So this is Texas' own spokesman saying how badly Texas messed this up. But in the cover-up, in the attempt to shut down the investigation, it's very similar to the Whitewater situation in Bill Clinton or Watergate and Richard Nixon, it's not the original crime that's causing the problem. It's the choices made since. And so where I think Tex and his case have gotten to where we are today, it's not so much that night. It's the choices made since. This is not just self-destructive behavior on Tex's part. It seems completely irrational, especially for an experienced attorney like MacGyver. And there's more. After Tex's bond was revoked and he was sent back to jail, he called Ann Schwal, ex-wife of Fulton County Judge Craig Schwal. Now, Schwal's chambers are right down the hall from Robert McBurney's. McBurney, of course, is the judge overseeing Tex's case. Tex and Diane were so close to the Schwal's, at one point, they became godparents of the Schwal's son. Tex is not charged with anything on this but he was clearly trying to use his contacts and influence to game the system. Again, this looks bad. Prosecutors introduced the recording of the phone call during a pretrial hearing. Hello, this is a collect call from... Tex MacIver. An inmate at... Fulton County Jail. And the phone system had this warning. This call is subject to recording and monitoring, and your location information may be collected and used by corrections and law enforcement personnel. To continue, press... One. To disconnect, press two. You may start the conversation now. Here's Tex telling Ann Schwal why he called. These are recorded calls, so I don't want to use any names. But uh, okay. could uh, you call the father of my godson and uh, indicate that it appears the other side is dragging their feet? Okay. Which is going to result in my staying here uh, much longer. Okay. Which is consistent with every everything they've done. Okay. If there's anything he knows to do, okay, he'll understand that. But if there's anything he can do, okay, we appreciate it. All we need is the signature of somebody 
and uh, that will get the process going over here, and I'm, I'm out. You've got it. That was Tex McIver on a recorded call, apparently trying to pull strings so a judge would help get him out of jail. So maybe you'd do that if you were in jail, and you have those kind of connections. On the other hand, it's a recorded phone call. How stupid is that? You may never hear the prosecution say it outright, and then again you may. But this is a critical subtext of the entire case. Tex McIver is a wealthy and powerful white man exercising the privilege that comes with being wealthy and powerful and white. But there's a flip side to that coin. There are people who believe Tex McIver is being targeted for this prosecution because of his race and prominence. That he is, as defense attorney William Hill says, a trophy case for the African-American district attorney in Fulton County, Paul Howard. Here's Hill. I would hope to think it is not, but I'm having a hard time rationalizing positions being taken by the district attorney's office without considering race. Only if I consider Mr. McGuire's race, uh, the fact that he was a prominent attorney, that he lives in Buckhead, only then does this start to make sense to me. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. After a few months in lockup, Claude Lee Tex MacGyver III is diminished in almost every way. He has lost his job as a partner for Fisher & Phillips, a national law firm. He has lost his power post as vice chair of the state elections board. And during the summer of 2017, Tex has begun to look haggard and lost. In court, his white hair is uncut and unkempt. His white beard grows unchecked. He's lost 20, 30 pounds. He has a thousand-yard stare. For all the world, he begins to look like King Lear, and he's sounding a little bit like him, too. Remember what King Lear said, I am a man more sinned against than sinning. Tex has always said this was an accident. He is stained by needless tragedy and scandal, and public opinion has largely turned against him. Tex's life had such wealth and promise. The union of Tex and Diane was a remarkable spectacle. The wedding signaled the beginning of a life in which they could have pretty much whatever they wanted. And they didn't think small. Howard Sills is the county sheriff of Putnam County. Tex and Diane's ranch was in Putnam County, and they became friends with Sills. The sheriff is a seventh-generation resident of the county. He knows everybody, and he was there for the wedding. Diane was over there in this elaborate white carriage with these matching horses, white horses, and uh, dressed up with these huge plumes and things like that, and uh, evoked something of the, you would think of the great Gatsby or something of the Art Deco era or something like that, I suppose, and her, her attire, but needless to say, it was quite the soiree. Also present was Linda Winkler, a neighbor of Tex and Diane's from the Brookhead condo. Tex and Linda shared a lot of political views. Here's Winkler. She comes in and all you can hear is the clomping of 
the horse's hooves. This is all you can hear. And she comes in on that wagon by herself. She was as white as that buckboard. She was a nervous wreck. It was so funny. Miss CEO of the planet. And she's got this horrific allergic reaction to lipstick. But she's calling my husband, who was in the medical field. And she's trying to figure out what's happened to her. Her face is blown up like God knows what. And she's hysterical. She had several wedding gowns that she wore throughout that weekend. And she had the dress that she wore to say her vows in. And then she had the dress that she changed into for the reception. It wasn't until she put that dress on that she finally took a breath and exhaled. In a story filled with strangeness, here's some more for you. Several people who knew Diane said she grew up in a trailer park, that her ascension to a corporate president was the culmination of a rags-to-riches story. But after reporting this story, I began to suspect that someone, maybe Diane, had made that up. Her cousin, Sandy Sheng, said that when they were kids, she and Diane were like sisters. It would be nice if like, it's a rags to riches, but she never lived in a trailer park. She, her life was never that humdrum. or She wasn't mm-hmm. white trash. She never lived in a trailer park. Her mother, like every time she, she married, she married equally as well. From what Shank told me, Diane's relationship with her mother was like Bruce Springsteen's relationship with his father. Springsteen said he and his dad were, quote-unquote, too much of the same kind. Of course, we have to get into Craig's Springsteen obsession. That's your one Bruce reference for this season, Craig. No more. And don't even get started on Les Mis. Fine, fine. Here's her cousin Sandy again, talking about Diane's relationship with her mother. And they fought like cats and dogs. Her childhood wasn't the happiest. She always told me that she she was going to leave home after she graduated, and she was going to make her own path in this world so that she wouldn't have to rely on anybody. She was going to be a self-made woman. Linda Winkler said Diane and her mother were estranged for the last 15 years of her mother's life. Diane even refused to attend her mother's funeral. I said, um, I am so sorry to hear about the loss of your mom. She said, don't be. I will not shed one single tear. After Diane graduated from high school, she took a giant step into her future. She went to work for Billy Corey. By this time, Diane was much like her mom. She stood five foot nine. She was a dynamo. She was, by all accounts, beautiful. Here's Cousin Sandy again. She was very competitive, very competitive, uh, always trying to pit me against her and doing something, or she'd come up to people and say, which one of us looks older? Billy Corey is a homegrown Atlanta story of success, phenomenal success. As a teenager and into his 20s, he worked at a local gas station. By age 30, Corey had saved enough to build his own station, which became known as Buddies. It was the start of a business empire that has come to include convenience stores, construction companies, video games, commercial real estate, and advertising. It didn't seem to take that long before Diane went from answering phones to running the company. Here's Cousin Sandy again. Let me tell you, she loved Billy Corey. I met him a couple times that day for the first time, and I think she really thought of him like a father figure. I really do. I think he took her under his wing and groomed her, 
and told her, you know, you stick with me and one day you'll be president of the company. And she believed that and, and, and she accomplished that, you know. During this time, Diane married her first husband, but it only lasted a handful of years and they had no children. On the job, Diane was a workaholic who built her career on early mornings and late nights. People she did business with recalled her as a formidable negotiator who didn't miss a beat. She was always punctual, informed, tough as nails. But she knew the importance of relationships in business and built a reputation on crafting win-win deals for all sides involved. She not only made deals with people, she made lifelong friendships. One of them was Bob Pabian. He once sold wholesale gasoline to some of Corey's gas stations. Corey eventually bought Pabian's distributorship and got Pabian to work with him and Diane. Diane truly is one of the hardest workers when it comes to business that I've ever seen. She was committed to excellence in everything she did, everything she did, but especially in her work. And she expected that out of the people that worked for her. But you never tried to put anything over on Diane because she knew from A to Z the way something should be, and she didn't put up with a whole lot. Diane had a supersized personality. She would speak her mind, sometimes so bluntly it could hurt people's feelings and embarrass them in public. Like telling a friend in the middle of a meeting, you could lose 20 pounds. She didn't have to worry about that. She often woke up at the crack of dawn to work out and even kept a set of weights in her office. One of my favorite Dianisms is what she'd tell a fellow golfer who just missed a short putt. What? Did the wind blow up in your face, little girl? And she'd say that to a man or a woman. But just as quickly, Diane could turn on the charm. Here's an example of Diane turning on the charm. It's from her godson's eighth birthday party. Happy birthday, Austin. We love you so much. And we're so happy Craig's here with us. He's celebrating his 10th birthday about a month ago. And we're just happy to have everybody have a great time. On the jumpy, riding horses, riding donkeys, just having a good time. So we're so excited. Here's Linda Winkler again. Her laugh was so rich and warm. And I remember the first time I heard her laugh. I thought, gosh, I wish I could laugh like that. Monty Vizi said when he left the state legislature in 1982, Billy Corey and Diane asked him to do some lobbying work for them. He says Diane made a lasting impression on him. One of the best persons I've ever met in my life. She drew your attention because, number one, she was so beautiful and striking that you gravitated to her. She was a private person, but when you got to know her, she opened up and she poured her heart into you if she trusted you. I've only known a handful of people like that. I know. You never forget people like that. And she was incredibly generous. She never forgot a birthday or an anniversary. She'd take friends along with her on lavish trips, paying full freight. And if you needed some help, she'd give you all the help you needed and more. Here's Monty Vizi again. You know, I was in Atlanta in 1989, and I had back surgery at Piedmont Hospital. And when I needed to go home to Tifton, Georgia, she didn't want me apparently driving three hours. So she sent her limo to the hospital to pick me up. And she put me on her plane and flew me home and never, ever mentioned anything about paying her back. I'm Ernie Suggs, 
And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Okay, let's talk about Tex. Like the woman he would marry years later, Tex MacGyver was an overachiever. He was an Eagle Scout. And by the way, in the MacGyver family, you had three kids. Their names? Tex, Spike, and Dixie. MacGyver spent his undergrad years at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth. Then he went to law school at the University of Texas. His first marriage ended after a contentious legal fight that lasted for more than two years. How contentious was that fight? Well, the final decree contained a provision for dog visitation. It said, The dog, Malone, shall remain in the custody of the wife, but the husband shall have the right to visit the dog at reasonable intervals for reasonable periods of time. The decree even specifies that Tex would return Malone in clean condition and have access to the wife's garden hose to wash the dog. That split was so bitter that two of the couple's three children stopped speaking to their father and for years returned gifts that he sent to them. In Atlanta, Tex specialized in labor law. Not the kind of labor law in which you sue companies on behalf of workers who think they've been mistreated. The kind of labor law in which you defend companies against those complaints by their workers. He also was politically active. He and Diane contributed more than $100,000 to mostly Republican candidates and held major fundraisers at the ranch for Republicans running for governor. Here's Sheriff Howard Sills. We were very involved in politics. Everybody that ran for anything, other than me, (laughs) uh, uh, there were events for candidates at their home on a regular and routine basis. He had the ear of top officials across the state. He was appointed by the lieutenant governor to serve as vice chairman of the state elections board. In that post, he was pivotal in pushing through the controversial voter ID law. In 2006, the elections board drew the attention and the ire of a U.S. senator named Barack Obama. Obama accused the board of trying to suppress the black vote in Georgia. The board had sent a letter to almost 200,000 Georgia voters telling them they needed an official photo ID to be permitted to vote. But the letter went out after a Georgia judge had thrown out the voter ID law. Obama and U.S. Representative John Lewis of Atlanta wrote a letter to the U.S. Attorney General. They questioned why the board sent the letter when it knew the law had been overturned. In interviews with the media, MacGyver defended the board's actions. But the chastened board sent out a second round of letters to voters saying, in effect, never mind. Most of the time, Tex was a behind-the-scenes guy politically, but he occasionally rose into public view, and when he did, it could be very controversial. After the Rodney King riots in 1992, MacGyver offered a tone-deaf analysis on a hotline set up by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution to get public reaction. He invoked Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his explanation of the Rodney King verdict. Quote, A jury convicted Dr. King's killer, unquote, 
McIver said in a tape-recorded call to the paper. Quote, the system works, and the system works in L.A. People shouldn't be upset, unquote. Yes, he really did say that. Now, Tex apparently did say the right thing eventually to the tall, attractive woman who had just moved into his condo building in Buckhead. Tex and Diane had actually met earlier through Corey, but now that she lived in the building, Tex began to pursue her in a way that bordered on, well, stalking. Word, word reached me that there was this gorgeous woman that moved in the building. Of course, my radar went on. A friend of Tex, who also lived in the building, called Diane's secretary. That friend was Linda Winkler. <laughs> well, Tex was smitten. She just um, wasn't interested at all. And he was doing all kinds of things. He would slide notes under her door. He would leave notes on her windshield. And he would, he would do everything he could to try and catch her. And she later on told me, oh, she would just roll her eyes and think this guy was crazy. So Tex asked Winkler for an assist. He called me and he said, listen, um, there's this new person in the building. I'd heard about her, hadn't met her, and I would really like to meet her. And I said, so what seems to be the problem? And he said, I can't get to square one. Winkler called Diane's secretary to plead his case. And I said, listen, you're going to think this is really ridiculous. And maybe it is. But your boss has moved into the building where I live, and there is this guy who thinks that the world will not turn if he doesn't get a chance to meet her. Can you help me out? So Winkler finds out that Diane works out at 5 a.m. most mornings. So Tex shows up one morning so he can bump into Diane. It was a very strategic bump. Diane's longtime friend, Danny Joe Carter, recalled the courtship, too. So one day she said, I'm just going to... I'm going to go up there and have dinner with him. She goes up there in a baseball cap and her workout stuff. <laughs> and they had dinner, and she told me that he was really nice, and she enjoyed talking to him. They wind up going out, and the next thing you know, Tex has acquired a $60,000 engagement ring, according to Danny Joe's account to the police. And uh, we had dinner a couple of nights later. And from there, just magical. We got engaged on horseback at the range. It was a special place. Diamond ring worth a small house? A romantic proposal on the ranch? How did Tex go from having that exceptional relationship with Diane to being her killer? What kind of marriage did they have? Must have been terrible, right? But most everyone we talked to said the two were very much in love. Here's what Danny Joe told Atlanta police the night of the killing. Remember, Danny Joe and Diane had known each other for 40 years. They were best friends. He absolutely worships her. Absolutely. They're like, I get jealous of them sometimes because they're more like lovebirds than right. my husband and I are. The only time she'd ever yell at him is when he was eating cheese nips. Okay. Because gotcha. he could lose a few pounds and she's worried about his health. Right. Their relationship was something to be envied. You're not aware of any like domestic situations that Diane had ever confided in you about or that they were having problems or anything like that, were you? There were never any domestic problems. Okay. Terry Brown was Diane's personal assistant for years. He arranged the couple's travel and handled all of Diane's personal business. 
He told the Atlanta police that Diane never told him about any issues in her marriage. Investigators asked whether Brown thought McIver had been cheating. Brown replied that he thought Tex would be too scared of his wife to cheat on her. This is worth noting. In spite of what all those people said about Diane and Tex's relationship, only two people really know what goes on in a marriage. The prosecution clearly believes there was something terribly wrong. I'm sure that's what they'll be telling the jury because every jury wants a motive. In pretrial hearings, the DA has strongly hinted that Tex had a financial motive for killing Diane. The state has talked about a mysterious new will that Diane wrote. Rachel Stiles, Diane's former co-worker at Corey, told investigators that Diane had asked her to print some documents at the office one day. Stiles said she didn't read the papers, but Diane told her the stack contained her new will. No such will has turned up so far. But new will or not, solid motive or not, the fact remains that Diane MacGyver is dead, and there's a large hole in the world where she used to be. I've been covering this case for a year now. As you've seen, it's been filled with strange moments, bizarre twists, ominous portents. But one story has stuck with me. This is Linda Winkler. Every year on my birthday, I received flowers from Diane. And we talked all the time on the phone, and and we were very connected. You know, one of Diane's favorite words of um, her favorite adjective of something absolutely wonderfully outstanding was magnificent. That was one of her words. And these flowers were always magnificent. I mean, you wouldn't see anything like it any place else on the planet. And so last year, the flowers arrived. The vase is freezing cold because the vehicle is uh, refrigerated. The very next day, the flowers were dead. They were phenomenally dead. So Linda called the florist. The very next day, a new arrangement arrives. Very next day. The flowers are dead. Killed over dead. It happened three times. It was a week before she died. And I told my husband at that time, I said, this feels like an omen to me. He thought I was crazy. Next on Breakdown, we'll let you know what happens with Tex McIver's bond. And then we'll get ready for a long winter. You've been listening to Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Breakdown was reported and narrated by Bill Rankin and Craig Schneider. Produced by Richard Hallix. Sound design by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative in Atlanta. Original music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Chris Basta, Bo Emerson, and Billy Guin. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Burt Roten, Monica Richardson, Chris Joyner, and all the fine folks at the AJC. To the crew at Bare Knuckles Creative... Chris Basta and Chris Nicholson, a.k.a. C1 and C2, and Buddy Hall. And to our good friends Drew Quideris at WSB-TV and Veronica Waters at WSB-Radio. This call will cost 18 cents per minute, plus any applicable federal, state, and local taxes, plus a one-time transaction fee of $3.